you hear it all the time. Like the best people, the smartest people will say, think big, think big, grow, like go try to change the world, try to change the world. And I think that is horrible advice. <laughs> the people that are trying to change the world are failing miserably at it and they're getting depressed along the way and do something you're passionate about. That's horrible advice. So like start really small, start something that uh, your friends will laugh at and say, oh, that's not a new idea. And your grandma won't even think you're an entrepreneur and your uncle won't talk about your new idea to his golf buddies. Just go do that and do it for a little while until you, another opportunity slaps you in the face. And it will, because look at me. I mean, I literally had friends making fun of my cargo van. My dad was calling me, trying to have an intervention with me saying, Nick, you're gonna use your Ivy League degree to move boxes around. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Hello everyone, my name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you again for joining me on The Fort. Man, I'm pumped today. I have Nick Huber with me. Nick is the founder of the Sweaty Startup Storage Squad and more recently has a growing portfolio of self-storage properties across the Southeast and Eastern United States. Nick and I met on Twitter and Nick and, uh, and everything that he's working on is something that uh, we've shared a lot about. We've talked behind the scenes and he's got a really cool company. He thinks about the world, I think, differently than a lot of folks are now. He will, I'll let him share that, but his life's mission is to help people do common things uncommonly well. Coming straight out of Athens, Georgia, the sweaty man himself, Nick Huber. Thank you for joining me today, man. Chris, thanks for having me. Uh, the real estate community and Twitter has opened my eyes and I respect what you're doing. And, and I'll lead off by saying I'm, I'm pretty small time still. I'm early on in this journey. So take what I say with a, with a grain of salt. I'm just figuring it out as I go. I love it, man. Well, you'll be big. You'll be big soon. But it, I mean, I've been following your momentum now for the last couple of years. And so um, there's no doubt. Let's just start with the two minute kind of cliff note version of your story, where you came from and, and why you're interested in sweaty stuff. Yeah, no problem. So I'm from Southern Indiana. I raised by two middle class folks and started a lawn care business in elementary school, hired a high schooler to drive me around town and learned a little bit about how business works and the power of it. Um, ran track and field competitively in high school and went off to college in Ithaca, New York at Cornell and ran track there and had a had a lot of fun. And at the end of my junior year, business partner and I launched uh, Storage Squad, a pickup and delivery student storage company. We bought a $1,500 van off off Craigslist and and started got, got our feet wet and, and we're really just trying to get out there and make a little bit of money and got excited about it. Let's just go a little deeper. How did you get the idea and, and you get $1,500 van? What did Storage Squad turn into and is it still going today? Yeah, so we... We, there's a, there was a problem in our college town where, you know, when you go home for the summer, it was 12 month lease, but I wasn't going to be there for the three months over the summer. So I was trying to sublet my apartment, but so was everybody else. So there's a massive oversupply of sublets during the summer. So nobody was going to lease it. So somebody actually reached out to me, responded to my Craigslist posting and said, Hey, Nick, I want to store my son's stuff in your room because he used the company there in Ithaca last year and it wasn't a good experience. Can you go and pick up his stuff at one of the dorms and put it in your dorm? And I said, well, you know, $200 is better than nothing. So I'll just go and do this. And when I got it in the room, I drove up there in my 1999 Cadillac that I bought from my grandma that had a huge backseat trunk and picked up all the stuff. A lot more than they said it was, but it was fine. 
um, carried it up into my apartment, put it in my dorm room. And I realized that now it was re- not really possible for me to sublet it at all. So I got serious about filling that place up and I went around and put flyers and ads all over the place and went to speak at the fraternity and sorority chapter events. And before we knew it, I had my room full then my roommate next to me, their room full. And I still had a bunch of people that wanted me to pick up their stuff. So I went to see my business partner, Dan, who lived in a big house in college town. And we ended up filling up his entire basement <laughs> and every room in that house as well. So about 50 customers and about five grand later, actually probably 10 grand later. And it was all just cash sitting on our bed. We're like, okay, that was fun. Now what? Yeah. <laughs> so you were filling up residential homes. You weren't filling up actual storage units when you first started. We did. We, we were profitable from day one. Like we used only what we had. He had a big Buick 1997 Buick Saver, which was bigger than my Cadillac. And so we were driving around town, picking up <laughs> stuff in our cars <sighs> in our, in our apartments. And we just locked the door over the summer and left. And Gave our, gave our buddies $300, you know, for the summer to rent their room because they weren't going to be there and they didn't want to mess with subletting it. And then, you know, we'd store, we'd store stuff that way. But then, you know, as the business grew, we decided we that was at the end of our junior year. And uh, we decided that we were going to, you know, spend senior year trying to work on the business and grow the business. So we got a website, leased a warehouse, bought a van, and we knew that we needed to get out of our comfort zone because the opportunity cost with an Ivy League degree right out of school was going to be significant. So we needed to test the market and see if this was going to be worth it. So we convinced our friend at Indiana university and he had a first cousin at Illinois and uh, he had another cousin or another friend at Iowa. So we launched those three branches all at the same time, senior year, all while we were co-captains on the track team. And Dan's a multiple time Ivy league champion. And I was on a quest to try to make the Olympic trials. And, and uh, so right in the middle of track season, right in the middle of graduating, right in the middle of meeting my wife, we were also, you know, in between events at the Ivy league championship answering customer service calls and, trying to grow the business at that time. So it was, it was wild, but we did get out of our comfort zone. We barely hit our goal of 250 customers and we made a pact to each other that if we hit 250 customers, we weren't going to get jobs and we were going to go full time in the student storage business. So you hit your goal is storage squad still going today and how many universities? It is. Yeah. So we, at this point now we do over 2 million a year in sales and we're at 25 major, major colleges. We're in 12, eight states, 12 cities. And um, I stepped out of the business in 2016 to do self-storage, but my business partner, Dan, still runs that company and it's thriving. That's awesome, man. Do, uh, do, you, do you all have a goal to, to sell it or just keep growing it? Or like, where's that business going to go? Yeah, we don't know. Right now, it uh, puts money in the bank that we can invest in storage and, and, and feeds our families. So um, it was a couple stressful years early on, obviously, because um, you go from two, por- two full-time employees to about 300 part-time employees because uh, you do all of your moving during the move out week. And we learned operations and learned how to run a business and what I consider to be one of the toughest businesses to run and that there is uh, because we couldn't be, could not be everywhere. And we had kids driving around box trucks and cities and we needed to be on time and with people's stuff at the right time. And um, really taught us a lot about operations and business. And we all man- we managed it all remotely. So <laughs> it was a lot. And we're going to get into remote management because you've been outspoken about that, but, but, Another question on um, how did you meet Dan and how did he become your partner? Uh, we both ran hurdles at Cornell. Um, I was a decathlete. He was just a hurdler. And um, we lived together and we were we were good good buddies. And I know that you get a lot of advice, you know, pick a partner like you pick a spouse and so on. But it was just dumb luck that I got excited and ran into his room first. And, yeah. and he was like, holy cow, <laughs> Nick, this is unbelievable. And he got excited with me and we shook hands. And right then we were 50-50 partners and we still are today. And um, I got lucky because I know that's not how you're supposed to pick a partner, but 
Dan uh, compliments me very well and he adds a ton of value and I can, I can trust him with my, with my life. So here we are. That's awesome, man. And I, I didn't have this in my notes, but I'm not going to skip over it. You were in Olympic trials. You were a decathlete, dude. Can you just give me like 30 seconds on that whole world? Like, were you fast as hell? Did you just jump high? Or I've seen that video no, on I... YouTube of the, <laughs> the young girl trying to get over the hurdles and she keeps hitting each one and falling. That's my only like real experience with hurdles. Yeah, it's, it's, um, decathlon is where you do 10 events. So, um, I went in as a, as a mediocre 400 runner hurdler and I knew to be a national level athlete, I wasn't fast enough and I couldn't jump high enough. So I needed to do something else. So I decided to learn pole vault and discus and javelin and shot put and all the other things that go into decathlon. It's 10 events and it goes over two days. And, and I, I'm all about picking the area of least resistance and the people who do decathlon, there's not a lot of folks who even try it. The best athletes are often not trying it. So while I'll never be a top 50, 400 meter runner in the country, I could easily be a top 50 decathlete in the country because um, I picked the area where the competition was what, where I felt the weakest. Yep. Are you still uh, running or keeping up with that world? I, are you done? <laughs> I love it still. And I'm, and I'm going to encourage my children to do it. Yeah. But uh, my body started to, you know, the impact over time started to get the best of me. You know, I've pulled my hamstrings several times. So now I race bicycles awesome. um, as a, as a side. <laughs> <laughs> I do like speed though. Yep. So you leave in 2016, uh, to kind of start your next venture and start acquiring real estate. Is that when the sweaty startup and, and is the sweaty startup, how do you describe what the sweaty startup is? Is it a media brand? Is it, is it your yeah, content channel? I'm, I am a, I'm an adventurer and I'm passionate about so many different things. This was just one side project that I felt so passionate about that I stuck to. Basically, um, my brother um, founded a lawn care company. He's an MBA grad, a brilliant guy, and he did kind of a similar journey as I did. He graduated in 2018, and he had the opportunity to go make 100 grand a year in Chicago or try to do something small and get his, you know, have, have value, you know, have your time and so on. And, and he decided to start a lawn care company, and I was mentoring him about my journey along the way. And we decided to record a couple of our conversations and release it as a podcast. And soon... That became me riffing and reading and, and, and jabbering on them to anybody who would listen about business and what I learned along the way, some of the most valuable lessons that I've learned along the way while building my uh, service company. And I'm, I'm just so passionate. So many people try to start new big ideas. And when you think about entrepreneurship in America, you think Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, when in my opinion, the real entrepreneurs are nothing like that. The real entrepreneurs don't even consider themselves entrepreneurs. They start small businesses. And, and when I look around me, when I'm in my town, when I look around the people that I know who have been the most successful. And when I think about success, I'm, I'm mostly talking about doing what they want to do when they want to do it, not necessarily just money. Right. But unfortunately, those two things are tied together. Yep. And almost all of them started normal, sweaty service businesses. I mean, so I graduated with a, a very, Cornell was very entrepreneurial. A lot of folks wanted to start businesses, graduated with 10 other good buddies who were all trying to start tech startups, trying to go to Silicon Valley and try to raise venture capital funding. A couple of them did raise a little bit of money, but all of them now have jobs, all of them. And everybody that I know that tried to start a small service business doing pretty darn well, a lot of them are tied to it, unfortunately, and don't treat it as a, you know, work, work on the business instead of in the business. But I think I just, I'm very passionate that that is the path and that entrepreneurship is, is a, is, is about momentum. Everybody thinks you need a big, big idea first. That's wrong. I, I think you can, you have to start really, really small. You have to be able to work first to make that first thousand dollars. And then, you know, before you know it, after you buy a $1,500 cargo van, you're doing a couple million a year in sales and, and you're 
operating at seven locations and you look in your bank account, you have 500 grand, they're ready to go buy a piece of real estate. Like you're in a lot better, more powerful situation to do anything else you want to do if you have that stuff. And that goes back to that mission of doing common things uncommonly well is you don't have to, you know, change the world to be a great entrepreneur. Exactly. I mean, all the all the wealthiest people that I know and all the happiest people I know, very few of them are the, also the smartest people that I know. Yep. Um, <laughs> I feel passionate about it. What are just some things that you're thinking about right now in that environment that are businesses that in the era we're in now, the COVID era, um, you think are going to do really well and things that are low-hanging fruit that people can get going on pretty quickly if you had to pick a couple? Yeah, so I learned I learned a, a little bit. Uh, another kind of thing that pushed me in the direction of vo- being vocal about the sweaty startup is I bought a house in 2018. And when you when you buy a house and you all of a sudden have to work on that house and maintain that house, you realize that there's an, this entire sector of the economy that entrepreneurial media does not even highlight about building and maintaining our physical world that we live in. And I tried to get a fence put in my backyard, and it took me six months and 50 calls to find somebody to do it. I tried to get my lawn mowed and nobody would answer the phone. I tried to get a cleaning company and a moving company and a basement remodeling company and a closet company. And I ended up doing a lot of these projects myself and just making a little blog post on sweatystartup.com about, hey, look, I got bid. I got a bid for three grand to build out my interior closet. And it took me 20 hours and 800 bucks. Um, let's do the math on that. It's 150 bucks an hour, right? So home services are exploding right now, in my opinion. I mean, everybody's spending money on their house. Nobody can find anybody to do the work. You can make, you can make $50 an hour cleaning people's homes inside of their homes with a $20 trip to Lowe's as your startup cost. I love it. I, I, I've watched some of your YouTube videos and I watched the one that you did on how to start a fence company. And that was just you in the backyard observing the fence company, <laughs> building it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have, a, <laughs> I have a website on, I have a page on my website called businesses. I love, and it's got about 150 service businesses that are just not sexy businesses that nobody says, Oh, I'm really passionate about this. I think too many people who want to start a company, are like, oh, I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about that. So I'm going to do it for these reasons. And they're really kind of selfish. And they're starting off from a self-serving point of view instead of like, hey, where's the best opportunity? I don't care what's fun for me to do. I care about where the most opportunity is for me to add value. And um, sometimes it's if you're willing to sweat, um, it's right in front of your face. And so the sweaty startup really, I mean, if for all listeners, you got to go to the website. It has the businesses he loves. He breaks down how to start these businesses. Since you're, um, I'll call it maybe more like blue collar America industries is where you've mm-hmm. spent a lot of yeah. your time. Uh, absolutely. What's it going to take to get this next generation of folks excited about that? I know you're going to be one of the people leading the charge, but to your point, you can go, people would rather go be a social media manager for 50 grand a year instead of being a plumber or an electrician that that's paying, you know, high, you know, 90,000 to six figures a year. Like what's it going to take? Yeah. You asked a really fun question. I listened to all your podcasts. You asked one about what's a 10 year prediction that everybody will disagree with you on. Yep. Um, or that would surprise people. And mine is that there's going to be massive opportunity to build and maintain the physical world. Like technology can only do so much for us. You listen to guys like Naval and all these brilliant tech minds talk about software and how software is the answer to everything. And they say, if you teach everybody in America to code, all the problems in the world will be solved in five years and we'll all have nothing to do. <laughs> Those people are in just such a, a bubble. It is unbelievable. To bully. Yeah. It's going it's to take a hundred years to automate cleaning someone's house and that's a simple job yep try build try building a machine that shows up to my house and builds a fence for me 
or does a landscaping project for me or builds a sidewalk for me or remodels my basement or cleans my, you know, does my plumbing for me and my electric, this stuff is not going to be outsourced. So the opportunity is going to be right there. I'm sending my boys to trade school. If you follow Nick on Twitter, my some of the favorite things that you do are when you I'll I'll see Naval post something like that, and you are right on the you're retweeting, commenting, <laughs> and you're like, uh uh-uh, uh, this is that is not true, and you lay into it, and uh, you get into some good debate with people. I love Twitter because first of all, I, I do it to learn, right? I I, po- I make those posts so that I can get challenged, and I know that I'm not right, and I know that there's so many different viewpoints, and my goal on that is to change my mind on, I have a, I have a sticker on my, on my mirror that when I brush my teeth every morning, it says, change your mind about something today. Like I want to be, I want to be so open-minded that I can change my mind on anything. And then there's no better way than challenging the smartest people. And that's what Twitter is excellent. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Not anchoring into anything. Warren and Charlie Munger talk about it a lot is it's a superpower to, to be humble enough to change your mind, uh, consistently. (laughs) All right. You are spearheading the blue collar America and opening people's eyes. Uh, I'm with you 100% that these jobs are going nowhere and they're needed more than ever. But a lot of what we've kind of met each other through and and talked uh, about is your venture into self-storage real estate, which is no surprise that self-storage is what you picked given your prior company. So let's start getting into that. When did you buy your first self-storage deal? Yeah, you know, I looking back, I did it the wrong way. I built a self storage facility, and I spent two point four million dollars to build the very first storage facility. I was twenty four years old when I was at people's kitchen tables to try to raise the money to do this. Um, I had no syndicate knowledge. You've seen my structure; it's, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, I, I said it. I, I traveled. I traveled around to everybody and anybody that I could get my hands on. Actually, the realtor who sold me the piece of land ended up being one of our cornerstone investors because I could, I was selling, I was just desperate to try to raise the money for this deal. Yeah. We built it. And, and so I looked at self-storage as where can I find the best return on investment? And I, we had, we had done business from, you know, Illinois all the way to Massachusetts, all the way down to Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, geography wasn't really an option for us. We just chased yields yep. and we found yields in upstate New York where they were kind of ignoring self-storage. And, um, we, we built our first self-storage facility from the ground up and, Looking back, uh, so we we raised 1.9 million on a 2.4 million dollar build. So I had to go back and ask for another half million from my investors about halfway through the project. Learned a ton about everything, and um, but then when when we got the doors open, we kind of quickly showed that we knew what we were doing as far as you know operations and out operating the local mom and pop storage facilities. So um, we built that. It went well. We did a big cash out refinance at the end of 2019, and now since then, I mean, I'm I'm pretty new. I'm pretty new at this stuff again, and. and 2019, halfway through 2019, we owned two two properties, and now we own ten. Uh, so, so we are again still pretty small, but we closed on one yesterday and got another one under contract today. So we're we're ramping. I love it. I'm gonna keep asking you about this first deal. Why did you yeah, pick? Like, why did you pick this market? Were you still living in New York, or like had had this this of all places in the country be the one that you develop a deal in? We had some comfort with Ithaca because we went to school there. Okay. But we did we did square footed square footage analysis, you know, square foot per capita on 150 cities. Um, we knew that we did not want to build in the big big metro areas. We knew that the that, that was a game that we didn't really want to start playing. We just looked at, hey, where can we buy the most affordable piece of property um, per acre, and where can we get the highest rents, and where is there the least amount of square footage per person currently on the market? And we picked Ithaca, New York, and and we broke ground. So what do you, when you're looking at a market, what do you, you said that you were doing some analysis, like what do you, what, 
what needs to show up in your study to go, yep, let's do one here or let's buy something my models here? Have, yeah, my models have changed a little bit. I, I used to think square footage per person was a really important factor, but I'm learning that that's not, a, that's not as important as I thought because it depends on renters. It depends on income. It depends on basements and houses. It depends on you know average square footage of apartment and so on. So um, I just chase yield. I, I go after markets where I can get 7% first year or more unlevered yield. And um, if, if I can do that, then it's a go. And if there's some upside after that, then that's awesome. I mean, obviously a new development, you're not going to get that first year, but what I'm doing now is we're, we're buying operational properties. But yeah, that first property, we took a risk and got really lucky. The market bailed us out and paid off. So and awesome. here we are. You mentioned basements. Is that so you'll just look at a market and go most of the homes in this city have basements in them just because of where they are that that wouldn't be as uh, exciting of a market as a city that's built with a lot of homes that don't have basements. You know, it's it's so tough and I don't have nearly enough data. It's a gut feeling. Honestly, I, I, I analyze it and I go visit all the competitors and I see what people are charging. And I run the numbers 100 different ways. But at the end of the day, you can only account for so many factors. So um, you just got to pull the trigger at some point and say, I think I think there's enough risk adjusted return here for me to, to make this a go and for me to do it. When you're doing this, since you own stuff kind of all over the country, are you doing a lot of the work from your home in Athens kind of sight unseen? And then once things click, you show up to, you know, go look at it and touch it. Or do you buy stuff that you've never seen before? Yeah. So we try to visit every property before we buy it, but I've been in Athens and I haven't, I haven't been on the road out of Athens since COVID hit when I had to step in kind of do our service business and go work in that for a while. Um, it's, un- it's unbelievable what I can get done from my iPhone and my computer. And I can, you know, my customer service reps send me reports of how many calls we miss, how, what average ring they're picking up phones on, how many rent, how many tenants we, we tied down. Like, you know, we, I'm, I'm f- following, you know, collections very closely and the operations are the risky part of this whole thing. So if I feel like I'm, you know, collecting money from tenants and I'm getting new tenants, I'm happy. Yep. You've been outspoken about being uh, hyper-focused on tertiary markets and not kind of core markets. Why yield? I'm worried about the, uh, I'm worried about major cities. I'm worried about the folks who are building these class A properties in, in downtown major metros. Um, I think the suburbs are going to do phenomenal as people kind of move to the suburbs right now. But I mean, you're seeing it with the first place, as soon as there's a little bit of pressure on storage and storage got a lot less pressure than other, other asset classes. Um, the markets in major metros dropped, the rents dropped 5%, 10%. And these people were projecting, I'm lo- I was looking, I was doing a lot of consulting around 2017, 2018. I was looking at the, the pro formas CubeSmart and, and public storage were sending out to potential investors who were about to build a facility. And they, they were banking in 5 to 6% per year rate growth. And they've gotten zero for two years. And now they're down 5% in some of these major markets. And they built them for you know $160 a foot on some of these properties, I, I know, I know that they're going to be just fine, but for me, a 2% return for a while scares the hell out of me. Yeah. It doesn't work when you're smaller for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what's the difference between a class A storage unit and the stuff that you're buying? Is it climate control or is it, you know, security? What is yeah, it? I call, I call class A those three story buildings with a full, full-time manager in the office all the time. And yeah, the, the, the public storage, CubeSmart, you know, big 70,000 plus square foot properties. Those are class A. Um, class B would be the, you know, non-climate drive up ones that are a little bit side outside of town. Class C and D are what I buy. And these are in, these are on country roads sometimes out in the middle of nowhere. Why? <laughs> 
I've seen, uh, we'll talk about the post you made yesterday in a little bit. What makes you bullish about self-storage, that America is a bunch of consuming hoarders that love to not get rid of anything? Or is there something else driving storage that maybe the average person doesn't think about? Yeah. So I think 10 years from now, the self-storage manager will be a thing of the past. I think hotels are, are shortly behind that. I, don't, I still don't know why Airbnbs five years ago, I could check in without seeing somebody and I have to go in a hotel right now and, and give my credit card to somebody and sit there for five minutes. It's the worst five minutes I have been in my life anywhere. <laughs> Um, but yeah, 10 years from now, these managers are gone. Like I can have a 25, my, my business model, I can have a $25 an hour, highly trained salesperson on the phone and he or she can manage 10 facilities because of the call volume. So why, why in the world would I spend seven, $10 million to build a facility handed off to CubeSmart where they're going to hire an $11 an hour employee with hardly any training to answer the phones and try to make sales for me? and sit on their hands most of the day. Cause even if you have 70,000 square feet, you're getting six or seven phone calls a day. You know, what are they doing the rest of the time? Right? So 10 years from now, I think remote management will be everywhere. Every facility will be automated. So by the time that comes there, the big players, the REITs are going to realize that they can make good money in these small markets. They don't care where it is. They don't care how small it is right now. They can only buy 50,000 square feet and up because that's what can support that manager. Um, 10 years from now, they won't have that limitation. And a lot of, and I think cap rates are going to compress. And I think my, portfolio. My goal is to have a couple hundred properties by then and see where it takes me. Is it just because the customer perceives their stuff is safer if there's somebody on site? Is that kind of why they do it? Yes, there's a lot of reasons. I think there's a lot of 60 year olds sitting around in board meetings making these calls. Um, I don't, I don't see the, they like selling boxes and tape. I, I don't, I don't like retail at all. I don't care about that 10 grand a year that you make doing that. Um, they like truck rentals. I don't like that. It's a logistical another logistical problem to deal with. I'm all about cutting out 80% of the stuff or 20% of the things that cause 80% of your problems. And almost all that is the revenue for that from that extra, extra 20% that you got to cut out. Yep. You mentioned your weird, uh, capital structure. Can you share that, uh, here? Sure. Yeah. I, I, I loved so, it. I had never seen it that way. Yeah. I've been laughed off of a lot of calls with LPs who are used to seeing the, you know, typical syndicate structure with the, with the 8% preferred returns and then the hurdles and then the promote at the end, what we do is if, you know, if we're buying a $1 million self-storage facility, we raise 20% of that in cash from LPs. So we raise 200, 200 grand and they only get 20% ownership. Um, the debt, the, the 70 or 65% debt is my ownership and I co-sign the loan and I pay that debt service out of my proceeds from the deal. So then it's a negative for the investors because they have to take a backseat to that debt. It's a riskier deal, right? But they also get a tax shield from the interest because it shows up on the K-1s. And they also just get to get in with a very low fee structure. I don't charge any fees. I'm not trying to sell my my uh, structure right now, but how it works, how I sell it when I'm in a meeting with, with an investor is, hey, look, I'm not going to charge you any fees. It's like you're buying an unlevered asset here and you can buy a little bit of it. You can buy a lot of it, whatever you want. But unfortunately, you have to take a second position to the bank debt. And when I'm raising on small deals and I'm doing small things like, like I'm doing right now, it allows me to own almost everything, own a lot of the upside and, uh, the investors still get their seven, eight, 10%, you know, paycheck every month. And do they stay in the deal forever? Or do you have a ability to buy them out? So when, when we refi, the goal is to obviously at year two, we've turned our million dollar asset into, you know, $1.5 million asset. And we're going to refi, they get an option to get bought out at the new value or they can stay in and nothing happens. So it's, it's unique for them because they, you know, they, they don't get the upside of this leverage. They can just sell their shares at the new value, you know, and take their 50% gain and walk away. 
or they can just stay in forever. And in the first deal and that 2.9 million, I keep saying 2.9 because we bought another $400,000 facility across the street. When we built the one for 2.4, we bought another two point for two for a uh, four for 2.9 total. We gave them all a buyout option at 5.2 million um, in 2019 and they all stayed in. So that extra 2 million in refi money went straight to me and Dan. And now that's what we're bankrolling and, and spending to buy, you know, reinvesting in more storage. Hell yeah. Good job. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's unique and, and I get laughed out of a lot of calls, but it's incredibly powerful. I can do three deals a year like this and it's the same as doing 20 deals a year with a team of 20 people with us, with the standard structure. Yeah. I think that, I think the democratization of capital where you're starting to see a lot more high net worth and folks that have access to deals forever, you know, it was a few people around, you know, each city or country that, that, controlled the terms because mm-hmm. they had all the money. And now I think you're seeing more deal structures that have come out of thin air than you ever have before, because GPs like yourself have kind of more leverage and more access to capital rather than, you know, going to the one family office that had money in town or something like that. Yeah. The family offices, man, I've talked to a couple of them. They'll beat you up. Yeah. Like, I know you like this structure, Nick, but, and I know that if you do syndicate, you're going to need an eight, you know, only an 8% prep, but what do you, how do you feel about 12? And you know, how do you feel about lowering that fee from one to 0.25? And I'm like, All right, what? <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm not trying to be selfish here, but they just, they beat you up a little bit. I, I prefer to deal with a, with a high net worth individual who wants to have an eight, eight, 10% return and, and get really tax sheltered money. For, for sure. So, uh, when you're buying a deal in kind of some remote country road, are you borrowing the money from a local bank in Athens that's willing to travel you around or are you just call in local banks in that market that you're buying in and borrowing from there? Yeah, we have a really good relationship with a bank in Ithaca that's doing a lot of self-storage work all over upstate New York. Actually, I don't, we don't own any Southern real estate. I, I do underwrite and put offers on some property, but I can't afford to buy property in Athens, Georgia. So we buy almost all up there. So we have a bank in Pittsburgh that we like, a local bank and a local bank in Ithaca and I'm just looking for another one in Albany, New York, because we're doing some stuff over Eastern further. But yeah, all small banks. Cool. Are you planning to uh, turn this business into a franchise or you just want to keep buying for your own accord and uh, grow into 200 properties? Yeah, management. I guess I guess the question is, are we going to manage for other owners? Yeah. Um, and and, and the, uh, the answer is no. I mean, the management is a, is a fairly profitable service business that you know, we do see some long-term value in, but the real value is in owning these assets. And so, so coming in as just an operational partner to manage the facility for a fee, that's not really taking up a lot of our bandwidth right now. And are you taking the majority of your cash flow uh, as a way to continue putting down payments on new, or do you pay down debt? Well, I know, I know amortizing you pay down, but do you pay down more? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we try to keep a very healthy debt service coverage ratio, especially right now. We're not even actually doing any new development or any value adds right now because of COVID. Um, but if you if, if there's anything that people will know about me and my business partner is that Dan Dan and me are the two most frugal people in this world. I mean, we like to pay our employees really well, but I live in a cheap house. And that part of the reason why I moved to Athens, Georgia from Boston is because instead of spending $800,000 on a house, I bought a brand new build for $280,000 here. And I drive a 2017 Dodge Grand Caravan to work every day. Um, I don't spend money. I, I really like that I can live on under 100 grand a year. My my whole family. My wife doesn't work. She gets to stay with the kids. And so yeah, all the all the money that we make uh, goes right back into what we're doing. And I don't see that changing because honestly, I have everything I could ever want right now. 
That's awesome, man. It's kind of a weird question, but obviously your wife is on board with being frugal. And that kind of goes back to who you marry uh, is one of the best decisions you make. She's kind of cool with that lifestyle, even though she sees that you're making more money and building more wealth. It's your, your, your family values still stay intact. I got lucky. Um, Cornell, there's two types of people in, at, my, at the college that I went to. Um, one of them is, is the middle class like me who always worked for something. Their parents don't make a ton of money. And honestly, Cornell had a really good financial aid package for folks like us. So we went there almost for free. Um, my wife is from a country family in Watkins Glen, New York, and raised on all the same values, really hardworking family. They've saved a lot of money to where they are not middle-class anymore, but they never spent it. And they always lived in affordable housing. They did things fun. Yeah, they did fun things, but yeah, I, I got lucky to find one of the, of the camp of, being okay with the simple, simpler things in life. And not that we don't go to decent restaurants and go on vacations nowadays, but yeah, she's on, she's on board with it. And honestly, that was the best decision. The best advice I ever got from a mentor, my dad's boss, back when I was in, at the end of high school graduating, he goes, Nick, you'll never understand how important it is to marry the right person unless you marry the wrong person. Yep. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's so true because this is a journey and it's stressful and especially doing it with kids and the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. You know, some days I'll be having a, on the verge of a mental breakdown and just want to cry and, and curl up in a little ball. And other days you're on top of the world and you want to just scream and, and your wife has to be willing to put up with that. And honestly, I, I wouldn't say I'm high strung, but I'm energetic and I'm over the top a lot of times. And my wife, my wife, uh, compliments me well there too. So yeah, it's, it's been un, unreal having her along, along for the ride. That's awesome, dude. Do y'all did y'all like intentionally have conversations about being frugal or just naturally happened? Like, do you ever have to revisit and, you know, if you're kind of stepping out of line or it's just y'all know the game plan and you live it day by day? We do. We, we operate on a budget. She's very involved in the finances of the companies and, and our life. And it was a recent, ex, you know, exploration to start getting a babysitter twice a week so we could go out to, on a date night and do and go in the morning to play golf one morning or tennis or whatever and hire a cleaning company to come to the house so she doesn't have to spend four hours a week doing that and you know it's it's out of our comfort zone a little bit so but yeah we're we are understanding that our time is a little bit more valuable and i actually hired a lawn care guy a month ago and uh, i was a little bit ashamed to do that but i did <laughs> i won't hold it against you man <laughs> so you, so if i asked you the question i think i already know the answer if you if you won the lottery tomorrow and got a hundred million dollars you'd probably just go buy a bunch of self-storage real estate with it you wouldn't upsize your house oh gosh yeah, I would go buy. I'd go buy a lot of storage. I'd, I'd stop talking to LPs. I'd stop talking to LPs, and I would go buy more storage right away. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, you posted a video on YouTube. I don't know when it was, but I watched it, and you were on site at a property, and you were walking around it. I think you had bought the the property. It was totally abandoned. Like all the units were were down. Mm -hmm. Oh, that one. Yeah. Walk me yeah, through that whole this deal. And I also want to talk about the Gloversville one because this one, that one is crazy. Let's talk but about yeah, both so, of them from start to the yeah, first so, day you saw it. What'd you see that nobody else mm -hmm. was seeing all the way to where you are today? Yep. Yeah, so I, I'm on LoopNet all the time. I mean, everybody makes fun of LoopNet, um, but that's where I find actually we had, we own 10 properties and eight of them we bought on LoopNet. Um, so we, we saw this one pop up from an auctioneer in Erie and it said Loomis self-storage portfolio. There's three properties. Um, it just said it for auction on this day, September 23rd. And I looked at, it was last year, September 23rd, it's supposed to auction. And I looked at my calendar and I was going to be the best man at a wedding on September 23rd on the other end of the country. So I knew I couldn't go to this auction. I'm like, Oh my God, no way. 
but I want to build, I wanted to build a storage facility in Erie for a while. So I went there, uh, we drove around the properties and we looked at them and then I called the auctioneer and I said, Hey, look, show me the contract that I have to sign if I win the auction. And he said, okay, sends it over to me. And I read it over and I'm like, okay. I said, what would you do if I just made an offer on this, on this exact same terms and signed the contract? Now, would you present it to the owner? And he said, well, we've never really done that before, but honestly, it would save me a lot of time and money from having this auction. So let's try it. So we made it, we, I, I run, ran my pro forma and, I, and it was really dilapidated. It was about 30% occupied, but all the units were full. And that's a problem because the customers, you can't find them. You got to be really careful about how you auction, how you notify. You got to do a lot of research on them. You got to post legal notices. You got to really try to find their stuff by law or you could be in big trouble for auctioning off the stuff. It's a nightmare. So I put it in my cash flow pro form as 24,000 square feet of storage. Um, I knew that if I were to build that, it was going to cost me 1.5 million or so to build it brand new. Um, so I, we, we said, okay, what can we get a 7% first year yield and normalize around 20% yield year over year on a, on a purchase price. And it was $632,000. So we wrote it in the line and sent it to the, own, to the auctioneer and said, Hey, look, um, this is our biggest and best offer. We're not here to negotiate. We don't want to mess anybody around. Here's a reference letter from our banker. Um, we can close on this and I can put a hundred thousand dollar deposit down tomorrow. And he calls me back 40 minutes later and said, Hey, the owner signed your letter. So we're going to go forward. Can you wire the money to this location? So <laughs> from the day we saw it on LoopNet to the day we wired $100,000 was about 48 hours. And, um, and then we bought it. And at closing, we realized it was worse than what we thought. And we went around cutting off locks. And we saw abandoned units in there from probably 20 years ago. And we went around. And it, basically, the guy was 80 years old, a great guy who ran a good business for a long time. But he kept everything, all of his records by hand. And he was sending mail to his customers. He didn't even use email to get in touch with his customers. He was sending them letters. Um, so it just became overwhelming to manage 180 units that way. So he had lost track of so many of them at closing. He gave me boxes with a lot of leases in there from like 2000, 2001, 2002, with just question marks on them. It was kind of, it was, it was sad. And, um, so we did, we dove in and we got in my kitchen table with my family and Dan, and we went through as much as we could. And we went on peoplefinder.com to try to find all the people and contact them. Uh, went through all the hoops, took all the pictures, had a big auction um, to sell all the stuff. And the video that I'm on YouTube is me walking around right before the auction with all these units everywhere open, hanging open and stuff. It's it's crazy to see. But basically, we got them all out. We got about 30 30 30% of the customers paying us, which was about four grand a month. And then we just started operating it. We got uh, got it all cleaned up, got some digital marketing going, got some got the Google my business locations. And, and today we're doing eight grand a month already and we're only 50% full and we're looking forward to a really successful uh, business there. Taking two steps back, like what do you actually have to do to evict somebody out of a, out of a storage unit? You said it's, it's not just as easy as, uh, yeah, I had to post notice on their, on their unit. We had to send them certified mail and we had to run two consecutive ads and two local papers to try to notify the customers. Um, so it took, it takes about 60 days. Actually, New York's a little bit tougher with the timeline. Pennsylvania was luckily a little bit better, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of admin work to just send out all the certified mail and do all of it. How long did that take? Like 60 days or something? Yeah, it was about 60 days. Yep. And, and we actually did the auction without ever being there. We, we took pictures of everything, put it on storage treasures. And then we put a combination, we cut off the disc locks and put a combination lock that we knew the code to on every unit had the auction online and the day after Christmas without us ever being there, we sent all the auction winners, the codes to those locks and said, Hey, look, you get your hundred dollar deposit back when you send us a picture of this unit empty. So 
they all went there and cleaned it out. We went back up and 90, 90% of those units were all perfectly cleaned out. It worked great. Do you actually look at the selling of, of stuff that's been left behind by somebody as a profit center, or is it more of kind of a pain in the ass and the cost to get it all out and, and auction it mm-hmm. is basically a break even, or do you see it as an upside? Uh, I, I always count it as a pain in the ass, but it ends up being an upside. We made about eight grand on that auction um, that paid for our new signage and things like that. So it was a big win for us on a project that was value add. But it is a pain in the butt. We don't. We we would rather buy well managed property, but unfortunately, the well managed properties are priced accordingly. For sure, that's where you come in. <laughs> so yeah, we don't we don't we don't mind doing the work, and and it's getting easier with with online auctions, and um, we do some guerrilla marketing on Craigslist to get a lot of people looking at it. We had 150 people kind of frenzy bidding the, the auction that we had in Erie, and it was a bunch of junk, and it made eight grand. So I guess we need to kind of change our mindset on it as a potential profit driver. Yeah. What's the second deal you wanted to talk about? Okay, so another deal. This was in Gloversville, New York, um, 19 Grove Street. If you're listening, you want to pull up the address. It side by side storage was its previous name, and it's been it was sitting on LoopNet for a while. And it was built on in a 120,000 square foot glove factory. There's 39,000 rentable square feet in the building, and this is Gloversville, New York, a town of about 12,000 people that has been shrinking since 1950. Gloversville makes gloves, right? Did I yeah, hear that right? They named it that. Yeah, they named it that because there were 80 glove manufacturers in that in that part of the country and from 1890 to 1940 when all the manufacturing left New York. The thing about New York is that manufacturing just left there when air conditioning got invented. So from 1950 to 1980, there was a mass exodus. And in 1980 to now it's been straight line or, you know, losing half a percent a year or something like that. So, so basically this, this glove factory is in this dying New York town right up our alley. And nobody wanted to buy it because it had a manager in there, only 39,000 square feet, and it was built in this giant building that who knows what industrial or what environmental issues there were. So it was listed at 1.2 million. And I called the broker and he said, yeah, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sell this because they will not take less than 1.2 million. They won't. We made them an offer for like 800 grand or something like that. And he said, it also needs a new roof and they don't want to pay for the new roof. And I, I bid, you know, got a couple bids on the roof. It was 200 some thousand dollars. So I ended up, making them an offer of like, okay, I'll pay 1.2 million or I'll pay 1.1 million and you got to put a new roof on it. And they said, no, we want 1.2 million, but we will put a new roof on it. And at that point I countered with an offer that was, okay, I'll pay your price if you hold back 300,000 in seller financing. And they said, yes. So I got a local bank to finance 920,000 and they, they held back 320, 300,000. The appraisal came in about 1.8 million. So um, we we got it. We closed on it yesterday and got a fifty thousand dollar check in our checking account to close on it. Dude, that's awesome. So so what's what's the game plan there? Is it was that kind of functioning as a good self storage or was it totally abandoned too? And didn't it come with it a house a, that you didn't know about? <laughs> came with a house that we knew about from the very beginning, and then there was like, some environmental problems in it where they had to go out and rip out some flooring that had asbestos in it. But then we forgot all about it again. We've been working on this deal for a year and a half. Wow. Because it's got so many issues. We had environment. They had to pay. The sellers had to pay a lot of environmental issues. There were some sprinkler problems. The inspection, obviously, on a, on a 110-year-old 100, glove factory came back interesting. Um, so it's, it's been we've been working on it for a long time. But, yeah, it's doing $19,000 a month now. But the, the possibility, like the gross max potential revenue per month is 44000 So rent cus- customers are paying like some of them are paying $80 for a 10 by 20 unit that we would charge 164. And there's no, there's no availability on in storage units, of those sizes anywhere around. So basically what we're going to do is first day, go in and raise the rents up to market rent. 
we'll have a lot of customers move out, obviously, but we actually put it on spare foot yesterday and got our digital marketing company started yesterday. And we got two tenants on closing day, two new tenants already. So yeah, we're, we're ramping up and our goal is to get it up to about 30 grand a month here in six months. And refinance that thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it. Actually, we're doing a little bit of an expansion. We're going to put 10,000 more square feet of rentable storage in the, in the back room. It's, this building is 120,000 square feet. We bought it for 1.2 million or $7 a square foot. And it's all convertible to storage, so we can just keep building out as we grow. Um, obviously, there'll be headaches, maintenance headaches. We, you know, we got a bid on the sprinkler system yesterday for twenty grand to get that fully almost replaced. But yeah, the the upside is huge. We're it, it appraised for one point eight million right now, and as soon as we fill it up and we're doing thirty grand a month, it'll it'll appraise for three million, and we'll put two million in debt on it and uh, pay off the seller's note and have two extra million to go buy more storage with. And you have no partners in that deal. No, obviously we didn't raise any money on that one because uh, we didn't need any more cash. So a lot of what I wanted to ask, and it seemed like on Twitter, a lot of the folks had the same question is let's talk about remote management, what you're doing to these properties through the use of technology that allows you to do things a different way than the rest of the industry is doing them. And I'm assuming it's nothing uh, earth shattering. It's just having the candor to do it and do it well. Yeah, it's nothing earth shattering at all. We use easy storage solutions, out of the box software that we pay $80 a month per facility and it collects all of our rent. It sends automated text message to our customers. We do it. We, it's got rate management features to automatically raise rent every nine months. Um, people can rent online and get automatic emails. So the way it works actually is if, if a facility has a gate, a customer drives up to the gate and on the front of the gate, it says, visit this website to rent a unit. They go to the website and they can rent a unit in about five minutes. They sign the lease, they pay. And then they get an instant text message that says, here's your gate code. This is your gate code to go in, check your email for more directions. And they check their email and it says, your unit number is XYZ. Go to this unit number, go to this unit. You have a free lock waiting for you in the unit. Thank you very much for being a customer. And we never really talk to them again. So that's how it works. And on the facilities that don't have a gate, um, we put a combination lock on every unit. And when that text message just shows the combination to their lock on their unit. And and when they open their their unit, their free lock is waiting for them inside. So, and I have a, a cleaning in Erie, it's a cleaning lady that I text when she goes and, you know, sw- swaps over the units when customers move out and she drives by the facility once a week and picks up the garbage that has been left around and a lawn care guy that sends me pictures every time he mows. And uh, that's it on these small facilities. You know, it's, if I were somebody who had a job and I was wanting to do this on the side, I'd say two hours a week of attention could, could help. Could, you could, you could properly manage a 30,000 square foot facility. So you sign up for this software, you put the, you upload the property into it. You have all your units. You put the mm-hmm. sign on the gate that has a lock on it. I show up, I go to the website. I, while I'm standing at the gate on my phone, I sign a deal. It lets me in the gate and it's given me a code. And you said that the lock, is it a, is it like a digital lock or oh, it's sorry, a, sorry, the gate code, the, the code is a keypad. Okay. Um, the code's so a the keypad. Gate, okay. The gate is a keypad and then, uh, and then the unit is unlocked and the inside you just open your, open your unit and your lock is waiting for you inside. So the, are the units kind of unlocked, uh, yeah. until they're locked? Mm-hmm. If we have a gate, if we don't have a gate, they have that combination lock on to keep the non-renters out of those units. For sure. Does uh, does that keypad, is that just something you buy at Home Depot or does that come with the software? Yeah, it's a, you need to hire a fencing company to come put you an access gate up there, 20 grand or so to get a good, get a good one. They have a motor on them and you know they open up automatically when you drive up behind them and you have to punch in the gate to get in. 
What's the average length of a lease like in your portfolio? Do you have any idea? I don't have a ton of data because we're growing so fast right now. And my oldest facility has only been operating since May 2017. And it's in a student market, so it's kind of skewed. But yeah, I hear, I, I follow industry statistics, right? I, I'm reading everyday stuff on public storage, CubeSmart, because they have the big data, not me. Um, I know how fast I know how fast I can raise rents because of them, because of their big data, not because of mine. And you know, the average tenants anywhere from nine to eighteen months, depending on market. What's like an average unit leasing for, like in your portfolio, fifty bucks a month, a hundred bucks a month, just depends on the market. Yeah, it's it's small amount, right? Yeah, it is. And and that's that's the power of self-storage. First of all, there's not, you know, there's no rent control in self-storage. Um, second of all, when you, you know, say you have a portfolio of industrial properties and each tenant is paying 10, 20 grand a month, a 10% increase on that is a, is a lot, right? That's a significant amount of money. But for us, when we have a $50 a month average tenant price, a 10% increase is $5 a month. It's less than the price of a beer. So you can really drive rents phenomenally in a self-storage business. And that's why it's so powerful. For sure. It's almost like it's more expensive to go take your stuff out and move it than it is to just pay the extra five bucks. Absolutely. And, it, and so every nine months we raise our prices 6%. It's, it's incredible the power of that over time when you do have a lot of tenants that have been in there a while. Um, the, the, the long-term value of self-storage in that regard is, is phenomenal. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen in a unit? And what is the most expensive thing you've ever seen left behind in a unit? Oh, well, I think it's not nearly as exciting as you would think if you watch a lot of storage wars, or I think that shows fake anyway, but um, it's a lot of junk. I'll be honest with you. It's a lot of junk. I, I wouldn't be able to go through them and put any of it in my car just because I don't want any of it. Uh, people people store a lot of junk. I, I think we found a stuffed squirrel holding a baseball bat in one that was pretty cool and eerie. And then the most expensive thing, somebody left an old beat up motorcycle that bid, I think somebody bid like $600 on that unit, even though the motorcycle was definitely not worth $600. So I, I don't have a ton of data. I haven't been doing this long enough. I think if we talked 10 years from now, we would, uh, I'd have some better stories about what we found inside of them. Well, we're doing this 10 years from now. You already answered the question, what's the craziest prediction that you would have uh, for 10 years from now? Can I make another now? one? Can I make another prediction? You can make as many as you want, Nick. <laughs> Come on, baby. I think, uh, I think Walmart's going to be worth more than Amazon. <laughs> oh, you've said that. I love it. I love it. Yep. Yeah, and why? I don't think anybody believes me, but they're, they're doing way more revenue, way more sales. They have way more real estate that they own. And um, I think everybody's really high on this delivery thing, but Again, it goes back to the problem of physical people doing this stuff. And UPS and FedEx are paying their employees a lot of money. Amazon is losing money on everything they ship right now. It's expensive as hell to ship stuff. And Amazon has this last mile distribution. We talk about it. I know you have some thoughts. And I want to hear your thoughts on this stuff because last mile distribution is going to be a huge problem because there's not enough industrial space, not enough zoning. The towns, especially in some of the major cities with uh, the, the political factors that go involved, there's not going to be more area zoned for it. So how, how is Amazon going to get to downtown Boston in 24 hours? That's, that's a tough question, but how is Walmart? Walmart's already there. Yep. No. And, and, and you've, you've been outspoken about it. It's made me think a lot deeper about it. I think the only way that Amazon can do it is by, you know, they bought whole foods, their play there is they got 400 of the best grocery stores in the best located neighborhoods in the country. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to go buy JC Penney and Sears, and they're just going to be buying companies to take them out and then move their business in. I think it's the only way they could do it, but 
You're right. I think I think I think somebody at Amazon who doesn't understand what you and these construction guys understand is just screaming at their engineers to tell them to convert a JC Penney's to a warehouse and they are banging their head against the wall and going back and saying, We can't, we yeah. can't, we can't. <laughs> These JC pennies are built for people walking around, and and distribution centers are not right. The 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 pound the square foot the pounds per square foot that you need for a distribution center is exponential. What these malls are built for, you're going to have to tear them down. Yep, Uncle Jeff, if you're listening to this up at Amazon headquarters, Nick said that Sam Walton's coming for you. <laughs> I think I'll be I think I'll be wrong on that because I but I I don't invest in the market much because I know that it's not about um, how things are really happening. It's about how people feel things are really happening. So uh, I'm a little bit scared of that. I prefer things that I can control a little better. You kind of touched on this, but how do you market your properties from a digital perspective? Because so many mom and pops, it's what you said, they just run it so archaic. What do you do digitally to get your properties out uh, into the world? Yeah, it's it's Google My Business. There's a, there's you know how when you're on your Google Maps and you search for a uh, something near you yep. um, for the little red dot that pops up is a Google, my business location. And, and that's a free. Cert- it's free to have, it's free to maintain. It's free to have pictures. It's free to respond to your customers. It's free to have links. And there's a big SEO game there with local stuff. I mean, everybody talks about SEO for online websites. There's a, a equally important SEO game for these Google, my business locations. And it's how 50% of the people find our business. So we run ads on there and we also do, optimization of these Google My Business listings and and sometimes just answering the phone is all it takes to get customers in these markets. Do you create a website for each property or no? Um, we have our we have our storagequad.com website that we kind of upload a page for every every site and we do some search engine optimization on there too. But yeah, the the tech is we're wrapping these businesses in technology. So instead of instead of going in like an example of before we bought this property um, in Ithaca they had an office downtown if they got 15 minutes away from the, from the buildings. And to get in there, you had to go downtown, sign a lease, get a key, drive back out to your unit, and then access it. Whereas when I bought it, all you had to do was pull up to the gate, go on your phone, sign a lease, pay your lease, upload a picture of your driver's license, and then you're in right away. Nobody did anything. So it's just so, so much lower touch. Did you say your wife does a lot of the books or do you outsource bookkeeping to somebody or how do, who does your books? Yeah, we have a, we have, oh God, she would kill me. She's, she's involved in uh, budgeting and not understanding where we're at financially, but she's not a, she's, she's not our bookkeeper. We have a, honestly, our easy storage solutions software has bookkeeping for each self-storage facility as well. And then we have a, an accountant overall to oversee all of our, all of our doings. How do you think about like, what's, when you're looking in your underwriting, like what could go wrong in self-storage? I mean, you know, you buy some properties, it's it's a function of like, you know, a toilet could break. Like you don't really have as much CapEx risk as you do. It's Is it more like you miss the market that there aren't as many storage renters or how do you think about risk? Yeah, so there's a lot of risk factors. Number one, these markets that I'm buying in are shrinking of people. I don't know how long they're going to shrink. I personally am not too bearish because everything in this world is cyclical. And in 1940, the exodus started. So we have a lot of data that's saying people people moved out from the 50s to the 80s, and then they kind of stopped moving out. And eventually, I think sometime the, the real estate's going to get cheap enough, and and you know people will start moving back. Hopefully, uh, another huge risk factor for us is property taxes. Um, as you know, with these blue states, the property taxes don't go down and they go up fast. 
and the governments there love spending money and the schools are extremely well funded, which I agree with. I'm, I, I don't mind paying the property tax bills, but you got to account for that. You got to account for we're underwriting six and seven percent a year property tax increases while we own this thing, yeah, which is which is huge. I, I need to think about going south for those reasons. But yeah, the um, you know, then operations, you got to you got to raise rents and you got to keep tenants. And if you can't do one of those things, then your, your projections are off. So we're really careful about our assumptions that we make when we buy and we run a best case scenario where, okay, we're able to properly raise rents and we're able to keep customers. And then we run an expected case scenario where customers are going to move out and we raise rents X. And then we run a worst case where you can't raise rents and customers move out. And if it, if you lose the place in that worst case scenario situation, then then, uh, look at a different deal. For sure. Do you have any, without a manager on site, is, is there any risk of like a thief, kind of breaking in and breaking locks and stealing stuff or have you run into that we have a little bit yeah we use disc locks um as soon as we get everybody on disc locks that almost goes away because a disc lock is a lot different if you know it's like a, it looks like a circle um instead of the u lock where a, a bolt cutters can get you in a unit in three seconds um a disc lock requires a grinder and a, an outlet and a or a generator so so yeah th- those that helps a ton we have good security systems but honestly you can send you can send security footage to the cops with someone's license plate and then showing the sparks flying as they break into a unit and they can still rarely arrest the person for doing it. You know, we require each customer to get on insurance uh, so that if something happens, they're kind of covered. It's kind of like renter's insurance, but, but yeah, overall you got to take the good with the bad with some of these markets. Where do you want to be with this business in 10 years? Is it, I want to be at 200 properties uh, all across the country. That's a really good question. I, I, I'm trying to enjoy the journey because the journey is the fun part. Um, the challenges, the struggles, the, the great thing about life and the great thing about business is that there's ups and downs and the downs make the ups better. Um, just like having kids, right? Having kids accentuates the ups and the downs of life. There's no, it's not even kill anymore where you're just always in the same mood every day. It's, it's the world is on fire or it's just moments of pure joy. Like your son taking steps for the first time, which happened yesterday. That's awesome. Um, dude. Yeah. And, and I don't, I try not to set too lofty goals. I'm putting one foot in front of the other. Um, I I'm, I'm seeing on paper what this can do for my partner, for me, my family. I just want to stay humble and I want to understand that I don't know very much. I want to keep changing my mind on things and I want to, be wise enough to, to not lose it all. And I want to be wise enough to listen to advice, even if I don't want to hear it. I think a lot of really smart people get so arrogant and their ego kind of takes over to where they won't listen to anybody. And that's when, that's when shit hits the fan. I'm just really trying to stay humble and raise good kids. And if we have a portfolio worth a hundred million dollars someday, then, then I'll worry about the problems and the stresses that'll come with that. But honestly, I'm just having fun every single day. I love it, man. All right. Do you have a morning routine or is there something you do to kind of get your day started? I, I love to share this because I, I did a I did a video on this because I, I try to do it. It's not realistic for me to do it every morning, but I try to do it four or five times a month. And what I do is before I go to bed, I put a couple, I, I put my computer on airplane mode and I actually unplug my Wi-Fi thing from my wall. And I put a couple of problems or things or it's, it's goal setting or if it's a big decision that I'm making, I just put them on the top of like a, a Microsoft Word document on my computer. And I'll think about them for a little while and then I'll turn my phone off and put it in the drawer and I'll go take a shower and try to fall asleep. And then when I wake up in the morning, I'll have a little bit of something to eat and some water and some coffee and I'll just sit down on my computer an hour before the kids wake up 
and I'll just think about those things and type and write. And I've had those sessions that I do that stem off amazing ideas and how I think about things that I'm excited to go talk to other smart people about. There's just so much content, so much data and so much self-help stuff. And I'm in the podcast and I'm just constantly feeding my brain interesting things to think about. But very rarely do I sit down with them and like calm down and digest them and think about them and like brainstorm ideas that are about that. It's, it's the mind of my mind, at least, is I get so excited about things. I'm constantly feeding it, constantly feeding it. And I'm just forgetting it all two or three days later. So the way that I found to really have good ideas, to really have a clear vision for my business, to get better as a person is to sit down with these things and type on them and think on them. And just and kind of just let your brain run. It will. Yeah. It'll run. And sometimes it'll turn into a five hour session where I call my business partner and we're on the phone about revamping our business model and hiring somebody over here or changing gears over there. Or, you know, sometimes it's a half an hour and I'm just making an idea for seven or eight new podcasts that I'm kind of excited about and thinking about. Other, other times we'll find solutions to problems and other times it'll be super frustrating and I'll give up after 20 minutes and go for a run or something. But yeah, I highly, highly, highly suggested to do that because so many people don't ever sit down and alone with their thoughts and try to organize them, organize the thoughts. Yeah. Uh, Brent Bashore, who you know probably from Twitter, put me on a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry that I've read throughout COVID because I, I, I think we're wired kind of very similar and it talks a lot about that quiet time in the morning can really set the tone for the day. And a lot of your best thinking can come, you know, early in the morning uh, by yourself, letting your mind just kind of cycle through. Because what you said, once the day gets going, it's just constant inflow, not as much outflow. That's a, that's awesome. I'd love to read that book. COVID has been hard on me. COVID has been, I mean, I've I always worked from home, but I've always really thrived on getting out, putting my phone away and interacting with people. And it's been really hard, especially since I got serious about Twitter right about when COVID started and how powerful that's been for me and all the benefits of, of Twitter. I mean, the people, the partners and the people, like if, if you're not, like I, I started the podcast because I wanted to meet people and I started a newsletter, I started a blog and I've been working on all that for two years and I got more value out of Twitter in about 10 days, but still the same, it, it's addicting and it's a problem and I don't like the way it makes me feel constantly checking notifications and, um, getting away from that is is something i need to work on i just bought a light phone so we'll uh i'll i'll have to fill you in on how uh how that goes i'm i'm getting off of my iphone and going to what's called a light phone which should oh. kill a lot of that distraction i'm still gonna keep my ipad so i'm gonna do all that but i'm moving to a light phone at least for 90 days to see if i can change my routine that's man i really i would really like to think i could do it but i don't know if i could i i yeah, it's a problem. I have a problem. I'll admit it. We'll see. I think every well, it's it's not just you. Uh, the the book says it, it says that the average American touches their phone uh, almost twenty five hundred times a day and logs onto it anywhere from ninety to one hundred and twenty times a day. But if you ask somebody at the end of a day how many times were you on your phone, they'll say maybe ten or fifteen times. We don't even realize we're doing it, uh, and I'll, I'll send you the book. I just made a note. I'm gonna I'm gonna mail you the book when, once we're done. I love that. Yeah, it's it's a we're it's a mental health crisis that is being largely overshadowed by a lot of other crises. But overall, I think the world's a great place, and it's just it's such amazing a shame that it's such a shame that social media and the media and news and interactions are all kind of 
I know that there's a lot of problems and I'm not trying to not, you know, shed light on the things that are real issues here in our, in our world that we need to address, but I, it's, it's doing a lot of damage to the mental health of folks who really care about this stuff because at the end of the day, you can only do so much to change it and following the news and reading the news and, and tweeting about it is, is just a, it's, it's something that makes me feel worse, not better. It's not news, it's drama. Uh, I, I, I kind of equate it to, you know, when our parents grew up, they got home from work at six o'clock or five o'clock. They turned on the six o'clock news. They watched it for an hour. You know, the Yankees won the World Series, Ronald Reagan's president, so-and-so died, and then it was over. And there was no laptop to go to. There was no phone to go to. There was no anything. You just kind of heard what you heard, and then you read the newspaper in the morning, and that was it. Now we have a world where that same story is now on infinite media stations 24-7 on every single thing. And I, I just am a believer that what's going on in the world today is what's been going on in the world for thousands of years. We just have a way mm -hmm. to create a, a different story and make it so polarizing 24-7. And if you look at the key demographics and statistics of the world, we're getting a lot better. People are living longer. I mean, if you were the richest person in America in the early 1900s, you didn't even have a refrigerator. You didn't have air conditioning. Mm. You didn't have any of that. Now everybody look at our has cities. It. Yeah. yeah. Look at our cities. I mean, uh, in the 1990s were dangerous to be in the cities. 1980s, they were giving buildings away to anybody who would who would take the time and money to fix them and repair them. The, the world is amazing. It's an amazing place. We have safety nets. The best time ever to be an entrepreneur. And yeah, everybody just is really fixated on a couple of the negative things that have always been negative things and struggles. And the cool thing for entrepreneurs is they can look past it and move forward and the people that get stuck, polarized, get left behind and it creates opportunity for entrepreneurs. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of opportunity out there. A lot of opportunity. It's hard to look at your cell phone when you're building a fence, baby. <laughs> <laughs> or riding a or riding a bicycle and burying yourself up a hill. Yep. That's a time that I can get away too. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Well, besides picking picking a uh, a spouse that makes you the best version of yourself, I think it's start incredibly small. So many people try to you hear it all the time. Like the best people, the smartest people will say Think big, think big, grow, like go try to change the world, try to change the world. And I think that is horrible advice. <laughs> the people that are trying to change the world are failing miserably at it and they're getting depressed along the way and do something you're passionate about. That's horrible advice. So like start really small, start something that uh, your friends will laugh at and say, oh, that's not a new idea. And your grandma won't even think you're an entrepreneur and your uncle won't talk about your new idea to his golf buddies. Just go do that. And do it for a little while until you, another opportunity slaps you in the face. And it will. Because look at me. I mean, I literally had friends making fun of my cargo van. My dad was calling me, trying to have an intervention with me, saying, Nick, you're going to use your Ivy League degree to move boxes around. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I didn't send you to an Ivy League school. Look at your buddy. Look at you. He just went to New York City. He's going to make 160 grand a year as an investment banker. Nick, come on. What are you doing? Yep. And I was like, Dad, Dad, I, 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 I don't want to go do that. I don't want to trade my life for getting in a car at 7, 7 a.m., driving an hour in traffic, sitting there all day while somebody else tells me what to do and looking forward to the weekend so I can drink 20 beers with my buddies. I don't want that life. Yep. I love it, man. So start start really small and grow as, as you, and the opportunities will start to come. Yep. All right. My last question, how can people reach you? 
Oh boy. Yeah. I got it. There's a lot on me. If you Google Nick Huber, um, we have the, we have a sweaty startup podcast. I try my best to respond to emails on there, but I don't do a ton. I think Twitter is the best way. Um, I, I think it's at sweaty startup. Um, the Twitter community is unreal. I mean, I didn't, I didn't realize how big of a valuable asset it is. You hear people all the time, like promote, Hey, follow me on Twitter. And people are just like, Oh, that's just another social media platform, but it's really not. It's really not another social media platform at all. I went from having a huge capital problem and not being able to raise money for any of my deals to now we, we, we did a $650,000 raise and oversubscribed in 20 minutes and we got 3.2 million committed all from people on Twitter. That's awesome. So I've had the if, same if experience. Focused, if you can be focused on Twitter and stay on brand and not talk politics and not shoot the crap and post gifts and this and that, and you can talk business and provide value to other really smart people, like that is an incredibly powerful networking tool that um, is going to be a part of, it's going to, it changed my life. I love it, man. All right. Thank you so much for uh, taking an hour and, and some change out of your, out of your day to chat with me. And uh, I look forward to reciprocating and, and being on the sweaty startup. Chris, thank you, man. Thank you for all you do. You sent me, you sent me documents. You've mentored me along. You've introduced me to some friends who have also been incredibly valuable mentors to me. Um, you're doing a lot to, this podcast is doing a lot for people and keep up the good work, man. I'm, I'm really glad you're glad you're out sharing the knowledge instead of being, I, I, I grew up in a, and when I went to school, we were in a very competitive mindset all the time. We were competing for the same girlfriends. We were competing in track and field. We were competing to get the best grades. And it felt like other people were trying to pull you down to get up and, and the real, the real estate community and guys like you and Moses and Brent and Keith, they're, they're trying to bring other people up and it's, it's a breath of fresh air and it's awesome. Yep, man. There's plenty, to, there's plenty to go around. The more you share, the more successful you'll be. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I hope, I hope, I hope uh, people found some enjoyment out of this and thanks again for having me on and understand that I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Any of this stuff. Yep. So, um, I'm, 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 I'm sure just I'm figuring it out. Maybe come back on it. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the cool thing about this is I'm realizing I'm not the only one. And there are a lot of people who have done a lot more and accomplished a lot more that feel the same way of just trying to figure it out as we go. The problems that you'll, you'll have different problems, the bigger you get, they just, business is all about just continuing to solve problems. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.